Welcome back to the Locust Grove Podcast. You are listening to our Sunday morning sermon series, Developing Disciples. This week is our final sermon in this series through this portion of John's Gospel. In this last Sunday of the series, we consider the second part of Jesus' departing prayer in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. As Jesus concludes his final exhortation to his disciples, we see that he turns to the Father in prayer. And in the concluding part of his prayer, he's praying for the church, specifically the unity of the church. And so while it is encouraging that Jesus would be praying for our unity, it's also challenging considering how we have neglected our own unity, or maybe even how we have worked to sow disunity. So we pray that as you listen, you will be challenged and encouraged by what you hear. If you want to find your place in your Bibles with me, we're going to be in the last seven verses of John chapter 17. That's beginning in verse 20. We are coming to the end now of this series, Developing Disciples, and uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, building the context here because this is really a two-part message that we began last week in this departing prayer of Jesus. And so if you, if you weren't with us last week, if you missed that, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it because Jesus really has uh, three things on His mind during this departing prayer. Last week we saw first and foremost He was praying that He would be glorified, knowing that as He prayed for His own glory, the Father would be glorified in His glory. But then we also saw Him praying for His disciples and primarily praying for their protection and their persistence as they live out the mission that He had set before them. And then we teased it a little bit last week. We talked about it just for a little bit, but this last part of Jesus' final prayer is really for the church. Now, when we read this text in just a second, you're not going to see the word church anywhere. It's because the Greek word for church, ekklesia, is not anywhere in this text. But uh, it is quite clear, I believe, that you will see that Jesus has in view the New Testament church that will be established through the ministry of the disciples that are soon to be apostles when He departs and when the Spirit comes. And so uh, that is really a brief overview of the context. And I want us to to dive right into the text this morning. But I do want to preface this message uh, with, with a bit of a warning. This is one of those messages that you really wish someone else could hear. Some of you know what I mean, right? The preacher's preaching and you're thinking about all the people that you hope are listening, right? Or all the people that need to listen, Right? We're all guilty of it. I'm even guilty of it sometimes as I'm preparing the messages, right? Like, well, I really hope so-and-so hears this. Or I may send a link to someone that I know from my previous church about, uh, about this message, right? I'm just praying that, uh, that the Lord would lay it on their heart to listen. Right? We're guilty of doing this, but I want to encourage you this morning to abstain from worrying about someone else because I really do think uh, that this is, uh, this is of grave importance for each and every one of us to understand as our responsibility in the local church. And so I invite you to join with me in reading uh, John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus is praying. He says, Neither I pray for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. He's talking about the disciples and those who will believe as a result of the disciples. Verse 21, that they all may be one 
as thou, Father, are in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may, be, may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved me as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for your word this morning. And as we, as we study this, this prayer of your son Jesus this morning, specifically how he is praying for, for the disciples, how he's praying for believers who will become believers as a result of their teaching, Lord, we understand that Jesus is very much praying for us. And so, Lord, we are thankful that we not only have a Savior, but we have a Savior who petitions on our behalf. And so, Lord, as we consider this prayer, may we consider it for its truth. And may it challenge our very hearts, Lord, as we evaluate ourselves and consider whether or not we have taken the necessary steps for Jesus' prayer for the church to be answered in our lives and in our church. And so, Lord, teach us, lead us, and change us through your word this morning. We ask all of this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Now if you notice, this, this portion of the prayer has a very obvious and a very consistent overarching theme. It comes up in verse 21, really right out of the gate. Jesus is praying that they all may be one. Right now, the all there, I sort of mentioned this as I was reading it. Uh, the all there is he's referring, yes, to the disciples, right? Those 11 that, are, that still remain. But he's also talking about everyone that will come after them, right? He's talking about the entire church. That's the capital C church, the universal church. Every believer that will follow because these men are faithful to preach and proclaim and write out the gospel. They're faithful to evangelize. They're faithful to plant churches. And those churches are faithful to carry on the legacy of gospel proclamation. And so he's praying for everyone. Every Christian throughout all of history, including us and including those who will come after us. And what's he praying for? That we would all be one. And so think about this. Of course, as we think about this oneness that Jesus is praying about, we, we think about unity, right? We think about unity in the body of Christ. Yes, globally, but locally as well. Uh, very important for our context this morning, unity locally. And so, again, we've mentioned the context in which Jesus is praying this prayer a number of times uh, last week, but really think about what's happening in the course of events. Yes, Jesus has been over the last several hours very intentionally developing His disciples through instruction. Right now, Judas has betrayed Him. He's gone out. They've traveled now from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's a lot of things Jesus could be worried about. He is fixing to not just bear the weight of the world's sin. He's fixing to become the world's sin. He's fixing to be crucified. 
mocked, a crown of thorns placed upon his head, nails driven into his feet and his hands, ultimately a spear stuck in his side. He's, he's fixing to die, be buried. And of course we do know that he'll be resurrected. But there's a lot of things for Jesus to be concerned about in this moment. But what does he do? He stops and he prays for the unity of believers. He stops and He prays for the unity of the church. That tells me the unity of the church is significant to Jesus. That tells me that unity in the church is significant in order for the church to fulfill the mission of Jesus. Of all of the different things He could have prayed in this moment, this is what He prays. And so we want to talk about unity this morning. What does the type of unity that Jesus is praying for in John chapter 17 look like? How can we be faithful to see this prayer answered at Locust Grove Baptist Church? Now we want to do this in a couple of ways. I think it's important for us to talk about what unity is not. We're going to do that first. And then we're going to talk about what unity is. And, and there are really two aspects to Jesus' prayer for unity. Uh, the, the bigger portion of this prayer is concerned uh, really about Jesus praying that believers will be united together in Him. But we'll look at, and it'll be brief at the end, uh, Jesus' sort of uh, exclamation point on the prayer. He's praying first that believers, that you and I, would be united in Him, but then He's also petitioning the Father that one day you and I would be reunited with Him. So you see that where He's praying that we would be united in Him, and then that one day we will all be reunited with Him. But as we think about being united in Him, we need to think about what, what this type of unity is not and what it is. First, we want to start with what it is not. Unity is not compromising the truth. Unity is not compromising the truth. It's not saying that, uh, hey, we'll, we'll set some of these important truths to the side just so that you and I can get along. We see this happening across the landscape of churches. Uh, important theological positions are compromised. Right, Important truths are held back for the sake of unity. I think D.A. Carson puts it really well. He wrote, Unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel. True unity cannot come when we start to compromise this word. We can't discard part of this gospel in order to just get along. Right? We can't discard part of this gospel to consider ourselves inclusive. And it's happening all across the landscape of churches. And, and what's happening isn't unity. Uh, if anything, it's actually bringing about disunity. And it's certainly bringing about this disillusionment of the truth of the gospel. And so let me put it this way. When Jesus is praying for unity... Uh, if we can agree that he's, he's not praying that the church would compromise truth just for the sake of getting along, we can understand that um, he's not praying for unity based on our own personal opinions. Specifically, our own personal opinions of who God is. See, our opinion of who God is doesn't really matter. It's not really significant because... There's a really good chance, as in a 100% chance, that your opinion of who God is is flawed in some form or fashion. 
And so our opinion of God isn't really that significant and it shouldn't be the thing that unifies us. What Jesus is saying is, is He's praying that the church would be unified on who God really is as it's revealed through His disciples, right? We might say it this way in our current context, that we would be unified based on who God is as communicated through His Word. What does God's Word say about God? Okay, that's what we're unified around. Not who we would like to think God is, not who we would uh, like to wish God was to be, but who He actually is. Right, I was watching a television show and, uh, and, and the, the, there was this person praying and when she got done praying, uh, she, she used some foul language and the person kind of looked at her like, well, you know, you were just praying and then you used foul language. And she said, oh, my God doesn't mind that kind of language. But that's a common perception of God, right? We, we just, okay, we'll accept that there is a God, but it's a God who I just perceive, right? He's the God of my opinions. And that is not how we come about finding unity. Listen, when it comes to unity, we are a people. And I say we, I'm talking about Locust Grove Baptist Church. We are a people that believe on Jesus through the word of His disciples. What we say and what we believe about Jesus comes from here and only here. It doesn't come from a theological textbook. It doesn't come from the opinion of someone who went before us. It comes from His Word. Our unity, our unity together began when we heard the truth about God conveyed through the Word of the disciples and our unity is based simply on this truth. And so it's really an amazing thing. Every Sunday when we gather as a church, you can look around and you'll see teachers, you'll see medical professionals, you might see uh, blue-collar workers, small business owners, managers, retirees, moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas. And it's amazing, isn't it? Because we didn't go to the same colleges, we didn't even all go to the same high schools, we don't like the same sports teams, unfortunately. Um, You know who you are, I'm praying for you. We don't have the same hobbies. Right? There's all sorts of things that are different about us, but our bond is to be far stronger than the bond that's shared by any of those things. The bond of the church should be far stronger than the bond in a football stadium. Right? The bond of the church is far greater than the bond in a country club, and dare I say, the bond of the church ought to be far greater than the bond of a political party. Because our bond isn't based on anything out there. Our bond is based on the truth of God's Word. Now, the easy part of the sermon is over. Some of y'all are thinking, well, whoa, if that was the easy part. But this is where it gets really difficult. This is where it gets really difficult to preach this message. It begins to get difficult, and it only gets more difficult. But I believe, I, I believe with all of my heart that this is the Word that we desperately need. So unity is not compromising truth. But unity is also not outlawing diversity. Now I get it. Diversity is a cultural buzzword right now. I understand that. And I'm not necessarily talking about diversity in the terms that the culture is talking about diversity now. Now, I do believe that the church should be ethnically diverse because when I read Revelation and I see what's happening at the throne of heaven, it is ethnically diverse. And I believe a church has real problems if it doesn't look like it's community ethnically. And so our unity isn't based on skin color. Our unity isn't based on what language we speak. Our unity is based on the Word of God. 
And if we think our unity is based on anything else, skin color or where we were born or, or what language we speak, then we've got real problems understanding the gospel. But I'm not so much talking about ethnic unity. It's important, it's significant, it's foundational, it should be automatically assumed, even though it is not always automatically assumed. When I talk about uh, unity is not found in outlawing diversity, uh, I, the, the image sort of comes to mind of like military battalions, right? So, so maybe you were in the military or maybe you've seen documentaries or pictures or something like that. But, but think of soldiers, right? A battalion of soldiers all lined up, right? You know, sort of in the rows and columns. All uniform, all dressed the same, all standing the exact same way. And when you look at those pictures, really the image that comes, comes across is a bunch of soldiers who are nameless, faceless, opinionless, right? There doesn't seem to be any diversity in the group because everything is the exact same. It's, it's the way that they're trained to be, right? It's, 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 it's the purpose, right? You eliminate any sort of diversity. You're, you eliminate any sort of opinions or, or difference of views, and there's just uniformity. And here's the problem. Some people think that the church should be a battalion of nondescript soldiers that are just ready to assault the world. Now, we do have an assault against sin. We, we are soldiers uh, in, in, in the army of God carrying with us as our weapon the gospel of Christ, but we are not soldiers who are meant to be nameless, faceless, and opinionless. As a matter of fact, this sort of ideology creates really dangerous leadership in the church. And so, yeah, maybe I'm talking to church leaders now, but maybe you've seen it, maybe you've not seen it, I don't really know. But when a leader thinks that the church is supposed to just be a uniform group of people who all have the exact same preferences, what happens is that leader says, my preferences are the right thing, right? And so now I want everyone else in the church to have my exact same preferences. To sing the same style of music that I sing, to study the same translation that I study, to do small group or Sunday school the same way I do it. They just all need to look like me and that will be unity. Now that's really dangerous leadership and that actually leads to a dying and dead church. Every, every church that I've ever been in, and especially the two that I've pastored, each time there's, there's been preferences that I lay to the side, right? Because it's not good for the unity of the church. And so I don't want you to prefer all the same things that I prefer. And as a matter of fact, sometimes when I lay my preferences to the side and, and practice your preferences, your preferences end up becoming my preferences, right? My preferences weren't the same when I left Minneapolis that they were seven years prior. And in 50 years when I retire from here, uh, Lord willing, my preferences won't be the same that they were when I got here. But you know what will be the same? My gospel convictions, my biblical theology. It will be uncompromised. It will be unfazed. And our unity will be based on that. I love the quote. I'm not sure who it came from. I tried to figure out who it came from, but this quote's been attributed to so many, so many people uh, throughout church history. But it's this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Let's think about this for just a second. I don't... I don't I don't want to just get on a soapbox this morning, but I do think this is super important. You've heard me talk about before that there are primary things 
there are secondary things and then there are tertiary things, right? Those third tier things. We, we, think, about the, uh, we think about tiers of things that we hold dear, right? Gospel doctrine is primary. Then there are certain doctrines that we would consider secondary. So let's look at it this way. A primary doctrine is one where we would say, if you don't agree with this doctrine, we cannot in good faith consider you a fellow believer. Okay, that's a primary doctrine. If we differ on those things, it's not just that we can't go to the same church, we can't even consider you part of the church. Right? If you don't believe in the virgin birth, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, right? there are a number of things that we would consider primary doctrines and we say on these things there can be no dispute. So in those essentials, there must be unity. But then when we start to look at something that may be more non-essential, we look at those secondary uh, uh, doctrines. And, and maybe a really good example of this would be believer's baptism by immersion. Right? Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ, notice that, in Christ, many of them practice paleo-baptism, which is infant baptism. Now we disagree with that very strongly as Baptists. But we don't look at our Presbyterian brothers and sisters and say that we believe that you're not going to heaven because you baptize infants. We still affirm that they affirm that the only way to salvation is from, by repentance of sin and belief in Jesus Christ for salvation. We disagree with the practice and the mode of baptism. And so a secondary issue is an issue where we say, you know what, we consider you a believer, but it may be best for us not to covenant together in the same local church because... Baptism is a pretty important practice of the church. And so in 50 years when I retire from here, I'm not going to go to a Presbyterian church. Not because I have, I have great Presbyterian friends. I value a lot of Presbyterian doctrine because it is consistent with some of our essentials. But that's a secondary issue where I'll say, yes, we can still be believers. But it's just maybe better for us not to worship together. Then the tertiary issues. Right? These are the third tier issues. These are the things that, if we're honest, we don't have any real answer to. Right? Think about this in, times, in terms of our eschatology, our end times doctrine. You've heard me joke before that I'm a pan-millennialist. I believe it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> right? Because we can have some idea. There have been some really smart theologians write some really good books about those ideas and defense in those ideas. But if we're completely honest, we don't know to a T how things are going to happen and certainly when they're going to happen, do we? Because it's not clearly spelled out in Scripture. So we would say, hey, listen, we may have some slight difference on these things. We, we, we may have some different convictions on these things, but that's okay. It's a third-tier issue, and there's no reason for you and I to break fellowship over it. And so when we think about in essentials unity, we're thinking about those primary doctrines. When we're thinking in uh, non-essentials, some of those we may be thinking in liberty to still worship together or, hey, liberty to uh, worship separately, but we still believe that we are both uh, consistently evangelical in our theology. But in all things, charity. And that's important, isn't it? Even though I may disagree with you on the secondary things even though I probably disagree with you on many of the tertiary things. I should show you charity in all things. I should express love to you in all things. It's a very, very important concept that Jesus is praying for. You see, Jesus is praying for unity, not uniformity. And when we confuse uniformity with unity, we damage the local church. 
So let's talk about what unity is. Unity is participation in a shared relationship with Jesus. Unity is, is not compromising the truth. We've covered that. Unity is not outlawing diversity of gifts and thought. But the unity that Jesus asks for is a unity of relationship. It's receiving a new identity, right? As, as, as one with Christ, being swallowed up in the fellowship with God, His Son, and His Spirit. Christianity, listen, it, it, Christian unity is a, is a result of entering into a deep relationship that exists in the Trinity, right? We see that in Jesus' prayer. He describes the foundational relationship between the Father and the Son in this prayer. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Then next, He describes the relationship between the believers and the Son in verses 20 and 21. The Son is in believers, and believers are in the Son, in the Son. So as a result, verse 21, believers are in the Father. And so all of this unity is, is bound up in the unity that has already been established before the beginning of the world in the Trinity. And so you see that. Our unity is actually rooted in our relationship with Jesus. It's another very important distinction, church. The source of our unity is not our relationship to one another. The source of our unity is our relationship with Jesus. That's it. The source of my unity with Brother Randy is not my relationship to Brother Randy. Because you know what's going to happen in mine and Brother Randy's relationship? There's going to be times when we disagree with each other. There's going to be times when I might disappoint him. I don't think he'll ever disappoint me, but there may be times when I might disappoint him. And so then what happens if our unity is based on our relationship, then all of a sudden when there's disappointment or when there's disagreement, there's disunity. But if our unity is based first on our relationship with Jesus, then we'll understand, we'll understand that yes, Brent's human and Randy's human and sometimes there's going to be disagreements. Sometimes there's going to be disappointments, but in all things, all things charity. Because my relationship with all of you is not based. The unity of my relationship is not based on my relationship with you. Our unity is based on our relationship with Jesus. That's what we have in common. That's the most important thing that we have in common. That's the eternal thing that we have in common. Listen, the nature of the church's unity is the unity that has been modeled and enabled by the triune God. Just as the Father and Son are distinguishable, yet perfectly unified, so we, though different, with different gifts, with different backgrounds, with different preferences, with different appearances, are perfectly unified in and through Christ. And here's the thing. If there is a river of love that has eternally flowed between the members of the Trinity then we find our unity with one another by immersing ourselves completely in that river of love. We get so close to Jesus. We become so drenched in His love. The result can be nothing other than our love for one another. The church in ancient Philippi was experiencing disunity with all sorts of disagreements and conflict. Paul writes a letter to help them deal with this conflict. And I want you to see what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2-4. through 4. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. 
Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Paul's saying don't fight, don't argue, but instead be humble and have unity. How? What, what, is, what is Paul's antidote, if you will, for disunity in the church? He actually continues in verse 5. He says, adopt the same attitudes as those of Christ. Be of the same mind as Christ Jesus, and that will fix your disagreements. Be of the same mind of Christ Jesus, and that will resolve your disunity. He goes on, he describes the humiliation of Jesus, how he came as a servant and was put to death as a criminal. And so what's the point of all this? The point is the only way for you and I to draw closer to one another, the only way for you and I to get over our disagreements, our differences, our hurt, our burdens, the only way is to grow in unity as, for us to grow in unity as Christians is for you and I to become more like Jesus. This is why I said this message has to be very personal. I don't know who I'm talking to this morning, but I'm sure it's somebody because we're all people and particularly we're Baptists and so we're known for our disunity. If you're dealing with disunity in your heart this morning, can I say to you that's a you problem. And the way you fix it isn't by waiting for someone else to change. The way you fix it is by becoming more like Jesus. Maybe someone else does need to change. You may not be wrong in that. But maybe your willingness to become more like Jesus will spark on their willingness to become more like Jesus because that's actually the way the church is designed to work. When I become more like Jesus, it inspires you to become more like Jesus. And when you become more like Jesus, it inspires me to become more like Jesus. And so if you've got issues with someone in the church, outside of the church, in another church, can I implore you this morning, you've got to first and foremost become more like Jesus. You've got to drench yourself in the love that exists in the Trinity. Because that's the only way we'll learn to love one another. Listen, Christian unity is a unity of relationship. A unity of relationship with Jesus. But I want you to hear, it's also a unity of mission. It's also a unity of mission. The context of this passage really is the mission Jesus had given His disciples. And His believers discover their unity with one another, right? As they discover their union with Christ, then they begin to discover their unity of mission. The Father and the Son are unified in their desire to rescue sinners from the shackles of death. Isn't that exactly why Jesus came? To save sinners. The Father and Son are unified in that. And as a church draws closer to Jesus, their unity, our unity, Locust Grove, will be displayed in a common dedication to the mission of Jesus. So do you see the two things that prevail in our unity? Our personal relationship with Jesus and our corporate desire to fulfill the mission of Jesus. Those are the two most important things. And if there's anything standing in the way of those two things, we got to do away with it. We, 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 ha we have to remove it. And dare I say, there are times in churches where God likes to rip off the band-aid, doesn't He? Maybe there are issues that were undealt with. 
Maybe there was a failure for us to become more like Jesus. Maybe there's an issue with leaders promoting uniformity instead of unity. Right? The list goes on and on. Any number of problems can exist in a church that create disunity. And every one of those problems is really a result because we stop prioritizing our relationship with Jesus. And when we stop prioritizing our relationship with Jesus, we lost the mission of Jesus. And so people stop coming to faith. Eventually they stop coming to church. Eventually the people that are coming to church stop getting along with one another. And the church becomes very much human, doesn't it? It becomes very much a human organization. And the only way that we'll protect against this, I'm not talking about the past in this moment, Locust Grove, I'm talking about the future. The only way we'll grow, we'll, we'll guard against this tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next year and the next year is if we prioritize our relationship with Jesus and our Christ-likeness and we are unified around the mission of the gospel. That's it. Anything less, we will fail. Anything less, we will perish. Anything less, we are at risk of God writing Ichabod across our doors and closing them for good. Because He doesn't care about our opinions of Him. God doesn't care about my personal preferences. God cares about my Christ-likeness and He cares about the advancement of His mission. That's it. Listen, when unity of relationship spills out and overflows into unity of mission, you know what happens? Men and women will hear the truth about Jesus from the mouths of the disciples of Jesus and they will respond in faith. That's it. It's really pretty simple, isn't it? The sign of a unified church is people responding to Jesus in faith. And I don't think we understand how powerful unity in the church is as a testimony to the world. I really don't think we get this. You see, real unity is a supernatural work and it points to supernatural reasons for that unity. The supernatural reason is that Jesus lives in us. You and I will never accomplish unity on our own. Deacons, we can have a thousand meetings about unity and we'll never figure it out. We can talk about unity in Sunday school classes or in small groups and we'll never figure it out unless there is a supernatural effect of personal relationship with Jesus taking place in each of our lives. That's it. Thomas Matone once said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Wow. Wow. I sort of want to sit down after that one. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. I don't believe this is an overstatement of the responsibility of unity in the local church. Most of you know my experience in church consultation and revitalization and that sort of thing. I can't tell you the number of times that I've talked with church leaders people in churches and heard them say, I'm embarrassed to invite someone to my church. And every time at the root of that embarrassment is they know disunity exists because in our hearts we know how awful of a representation of the gospel that disunity is. Jesus isn't walking through those doors physically and He isn't walking out of those doors physically this morning. 
And so Locust Grove, if we want our neighbors and the nations to see Jesus, we have to be a unified body of Jesus. A unified reflection of Jesus for them. John MacArthur puts it this way, the effectiveness of the church's evangelism is devastated by dissension and disputes among its members. The effectiveness of our gospel message is completely dependent on my willingness and your willingness to be unified in this gospel message. Listen, we can all probably share stories, sad stories that show that these two quotes are very much true. But the good news is the reverse is also true. Because a unified church reveals powerful, life-changing truths to the world. Listen, Christian unity reveals Jesus actually did come to earth. He actually was sent by the Father to die on a cross and pay the penalty for our sin. Listen, the church is the visible display of God's goodness to the world. What people think of Jesus will largely be determined what they see in the local church. Each local church is the visible display of God's kindness to its community. And so Locust Grove, what are we displaying to our community? What are we displaying to our community? Listen, we don't have photographs of Jesus. The church is the photograph. The church is the picture of His love and mercy. Just picture, just, just imagine a picture frame around each church and the sign above us, above that, above that picture frame that says, come and see what God is like. Because that's exactly what's happening. When people want to know what God is like, they're going to look at the church. And so when, non, when a non-Christian sees a unified church, the only logical conclusion is God loves us like He loves Jesus. A, a group of believers that span generations, prayerfully ethnicity, certainly gender, all worshiping Christ and ministering to one another will make an unbelieving world stop and say, wait a second, everywhere I see disunity, Everywhere I see lines drawn in the sand because of gender. Everywhere I see lines drawn in the sand because of ethnicity. Everywhere I see lines drawn in the sand because of opinions. But not in the church. There's only one line in the sand. Gospel, not gospel. There is only one image portrayed and it is the image of Jesus Christ. A unified church is a billboard declaring that Jesus came to earth because the Father loves us and and with, with the same exact love that He reserved for His Son. I don't believe there could possibly be a more compelling message to a lost and dying world than a unified church. A church that is unified around the gospel in a relationship with Jesus and unified in their mission. I know I've got to be brief, but I want to close with this. Jesus not only prays for the unity of believers in Him, He prays that believers will one day be reunited with Him. You know, Christians experience a unique union and fellowship with Jesus right now. But what we experience with Jesus right now is really only a shadow of what we will experience in His presence for all eternity. Verse 24 reminds us that in His Father's house we will see His glory. 
we will see the full display of His divine goodness. We will experience the presence of Jesus in unveiled splendor. We get a taste of it now. Prayerfully, we're getting a taste of it now through His Word, by the indwelling of His Spirit, by the fellowship of the local church. But in the future, we will experience the full delight, the unveiled experience of His joy, unhindered fellowship with the Savior. John Calvin describes it this way, At that time they saw Christ's glory as some shut up in the darkness sees a feeble and glimmering light through small cracks. Christ now wants them to go on to enjoy the full brightness of heaven. Now we experience His glory as if we're shut up in a dark room and some of the light is just piercing through the cracks. But one day, the darkness will be totally removed and we will see the full experience of His glory. The Apostle John wrote, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We will see Him as He is. We will worship Him face to face. And what an incredible privilege. What an incredible promise. We we know Jesus and have been received into His family and one day we are going home. We're going to a home that will be unaffected by dissension, unaffected by divorce, unmarked by abuse, unstained by sin. We're going to a home where we will forever experience perfect and complete harmony. Why? Because we're going to our Father's house. Joni Erickson Tata tells a wonderful story about a little boy named Jeff. She says, At the end of a five-day retreat for families affected by disabilities, a microphone was passed around so all the participants could share a couple of sentences about how meaningful, how fun the week had been. Little freckle-faced, red-haired Jeff raised his hand. We were so excited to see what Jeff would say because Jeff had won the hearts of all of us at the family retreat. Jeff has Down syndrome. He took the microphone, put it right up to his mouth, and said, let's go home. Later, his mother told me his dad couldn't come to the family retreat because he had to work. And Jeff had really missed his dad back home and desperately wanted to get home to see his father. Church, it won't be long until we get home. It's not going to be long, not much longer, and we'll forever enjoy the peace and unity of the Father's house. right? In, in just a little while, we will experience the uninhibited love of the Father and the Son that they shared together from before the foundation of the world. But the good news is we can begin to experience it here. The church can be a taste of heaven. When people with different preferences, hobbies, jobs, genders, backgrounds, skin color, accents different tastes, love one another with a love that surpasses anything that human love could possibly imagine. When that happens, we open a window to heaven and people begin to feel that breeze from a far off country and their soul awakens a long and dormant hope. When people see that, they want to go to a place and be with those people who know, see, and feel something different, something beyond, something more than what can be experienced in this life. Listen, the love of God assures us that we have a home, that we have a country on the other side of the sea, as it were. And this knowledge binds you and I together. But it should also spill out in love that feels strangely foreign, but somehow still familiar. When people see this love displayed in a million different 
little ways. They won't only hope that it's real. They'll see that hope confirmed. They'll understand that the, tro- that the story is true when they meet Jesus. The unity of the church will communicate to a lost and dying world that they desperately need Jesus. A unified church will lead people to know Jesus, to live in Jesus, to experience the love of Jesus and love like Jesus. A unified church grows the kingdom of God. The gospel has to be placed above everything else. In essentials, there has to be unity. 100%. There has to be unity in the essentials. And if there is disunity, then we have to stop as individuals and submit ourselves to the essentials all over again. If there's disunity in your heart, what someone did might have been wrong. They might could have said it better. They might could have done it differently. But we're not unified because of our relationship with one another. We are unified because of our relationship with Jesus. And if we can't put our relationship with Jesus first, then we have a long, impossible road to hoe. Because our unity has to be based in our relationship with Jesus. And that relationship with Jesus must carry us into a unity for the mission of Jesus. I invite you to stand with me as Rebecca comes. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for Your Word. And Lord, I don't know about anyone else this morning, but I think about how encouraging it is that Jesus would pray for our unity now. But I also feel this unique sense of burden knowing that even in my own ministry, in my own experience as a Christian, as church member, even as a pastor, there have been times when I have allowed the enemy to sow disunity in my heart. There have been times when I have harbored unforgiveness. There have been times when I have promoted uniformity instead of unity. There have been times when I've made third tier issues primary issues. There have been times when I have contributed to the problem. And Lord, I imagine it's true for most of us in some way, some form, some fashion, at some time. But Lord, we also know that the past cannot be changed. The past will be the same tomorrow as it is today and next week as it is this week. But Lord, I also acknowledge that what can change is my heart. I acknowledge that I can be formed more into the image of your son, Jesus. And so rather than committing all over again the mistakes of the past or harboring disunity as a result of the past, Lord, would you just lead each of us into a deeper relationship with you? May we not be unified because of our differences and certainly may we not sacrifice or discard truth 
in order to be unified, but maybe we be unified because of those core tenets of the gospel that was delivered once and all for the saints through the apostles. May we be unified in the gospel. And may the gospel shape your mission before us. May we serve together. May we love together. May we worship together. And may we see your kingdom expanded together for your glory. Lord, unify us around the things that are worth being unified over. And give us charity and everything else. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We want to encourage you to be able to engage with Locust Grove on a new level. We are now receiving questions. These questions can be theological questions, questions about the Bible, about biblical history, Christian history, church history, or even questions concerning contemporary moral and ethical issues. You can submit these questions in person. When you enter our sanctuary in the vestibule, there's a box there for you to be able to write your questions and submit them. Or you can submit them online. You can reach out to us through our church email, locustgrovebaptistchurch at gmail.com, through our Facebook page, through our church website, or even through our podcasting platform. You can submit your questions directly to us at anchor.fm forward slash podcast. We can't wait to hear some of the great questions that you'll have. We can't wait to be able to answer those questions and make sure that the church, that the body of Christ, that disciples are well informed and well equipped to be able to go into this world and make much of Jesus.